You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. We are in our third week in a series devoted to prayer. We are trying to make that a more regular rhythm of our church world. If you've noticed our prayer board, it's being utilized very well. If you notice the little marks on those tags, it's just us as a staff marking them so we know that we've prayed over those things. We ask that you continue to interact with them, write your prayers, put them on the board, even come in here during the week, before service, after service, and pray over um, the requests that are put on that board. I said we're in John 17 today, that's where we'll be. We are going to center our discussion today around the what of prayer. What do we pray for? And on that surface, that seems like a rather dumb question. Like, what do you mean, what do we pray for? We just, we pray. And I I get that. I I agree with that. The Apostle Paul, in, in many of his letters, says things like, pray without ceasing. Pray in all circumstances, all kinds of prayers, and don't stop. And so on the surface, it seems to be a bit settled that we should pray for everything and never stop all the time. There's no law that forbids us from praying about certain things. But if prayer is in a way us appealing to the God of the universe to have lordship, over whatever it is that we are bringing to him. If we are praying to God that he would help us, that we'd give us this, that we need this, if we're asking for him to intervene through our prayers, wouldn't it make sense that we would account for what it is that God wants for us? What does God want for us? Like, I know, I know what I want for me. And you know what you want for you. But what does God want? want for us? Is there alignment? Do we know what he wants? If you were to go into a job interview, per se, if you walked in to a a presumptive boss someday, and you walked in, you said, hey, Chuck, I'm going to call you Chuck. Is that okay? Okay, I'm going to call you Chuck, no matter what. Here's what I want. I want a three-day work week, uh, eight hours a day. I want $45 an hour, Uh, Monday needs to be jammy day. I'm just going to roll out of bed from Sunday. The corner office, I want that. It's got the mini fridge in the window, and I need a company car. And oh, by the way, I'll be here Tuesday because I'm going to take Monday off next week, okay? Would you do that? Of course you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't go into your future boss's office and do that. You would never do that. What would you do? Well, hours, days, weeks before you even entered into that building, you would become acquainted with what the job is what the job requires of you, what your boss is looking for, and that would inform any request that you might have. You would know what they want. And so here's the problem for us. We think that we know what God wants for us. But more often than not, we don't. We think what God wants for us often is what we want for ourselves. And so look, here's the fundamental truth of the human condition. And this is our need. This is why we need rescue and redemption. 
our hearts are selfish and sinful and love ourselves more than anything else. And we are more inclined to do the things that we shouldn't than to pursue after the flourishing things that God has set before us. And this world and our enemy, Satan, does us no favors. They confirm over and over again that we should be happy, that we should get what we want. And if that is not happening, then someone or something is denying us our fundamental right because everyone deserves to be happy. And so what that means is it makes prayer into a cosmic checklist where we pray to God all of our desires in our entitlement and we expect him to deliver on those things. And when they don't become our reality, when they don't become, when we don't get what we want, the problem in the scenario isn't us. Because of course not. Why would it be us? The problem in the scenario is God. God becomes the problem in the scenario. Because if God really loved me, we say, he would have given me that. Or that wouldn't have happened. Or this would have happened. And so friends, today, I'd really like to spend our time focusing today on what it is that God wants for us. It's vitally important to our prayer life. Vitally important to our prayer lives. It's critical for our alignment. And here's the cool thing. We know what God wants from us and for us from his word. He tells us. And what is even more wonderful than that is that he is praying those things over us even in this very moment. They have never changed. And so we're going to head into John 17, but would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you today, and we are so grateful. We're so grateful, Lord, that we get to gather here as a group of people seeking to love you better, to know you better. We know that this is a, this is a privilege, Lord, that there are people in other places in the world that can't do this. And so, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness and your kindness that we can come together and worship you. And, Lord, we pray that you would just give us grace, that you would give us conviction that you'd give us gladness in our hearts as your word interacts with us, that your spirit would, would convey to us the very things that you want to teach to us in this moment. So Lord, use these words for your benefit. Use these words for your glory. They will not come back void. We know that. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. And so this is John 17. We're going to read the whole chapter. And so I'm going to say there's a lot of Trinitarian language in here, okay? So it's gonna feel a little bit redundant, but I'm gonna go slow, and we're gonna stick together in this. John 17, verse one, all the way through 26. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I've had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept, they have kept your word, 
Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you have sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified them in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because of, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these alone only, but for also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, and me are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that you also, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made it known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so what is happening here in John 17? Well, this is a famous prayer called the High Priestly Prayer. It is a remarkable event in the life of Jesus in the moments before his brutal murder and execution. In these moments, Jesus sets aside significant time to pray. It's an event that happens as Jesus and the disciples depart from the room they celebrated Passover in, as we call the Last Supper, and they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And along the way, he stops with his disciples to pray, and for their good, that they would hear the words that Jesus is praying over them when he departs. And this is good for us, too, to know what Jesus has prayed over us. Why is it called the high priestly prayer? 
Why is it called the high priestly prayer? Well, amongst the nation of Israel, early in our Old Testament, God decreed that one would fill the office called the high priest. It had lots of responsibilities. And the very first was a person named Aaron, the brother of Moses. And that office, the office of the high priest, continued to the very day of Jesus' words. One of the roles of the high priest was on the day of atonement, which you might have heard conveyed in a term called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. On that day, the high priest would enter into a room called the Holies of Holies in the temple, this small room with a curtain in it. He would make a sacrifice for himself to ritually purify himself in his sin. And then he would make a sacrifice for the nation of Israel to cover their sins for that year. And so the symbolism is pretty basic. God's judgment is poured out through the blood of an animal and not on his people. And the high priest would do that every year. One of the offices that Jesus has come to fill on the earth, one of the reasons that he came here was to become the great high priest. Not one that is appointed by people, but one that is appointed by God himself. He is the great high priest. We're going to study the book of Hebrews later this year, and we'll get more clarity on what that role looks like. But here in this moment, Jesus is in a sense taking a moment to offer a prayer of preparation as a normative high priest might do before a sacrifice to bless, to consecrate, to, to, to make notice this moment before the sacrifice to be pure. The difference here is that Jesus isn't preparing to offer a sacrifice. Jesus is preparing to become the sacrifice, a once and forever atonement for the sins of God's people, past, present, and future. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 writes it this way. He says, and every priest, referring to just normative priests, stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had off, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so this is pretty plain and simple. Jesus is going to bleed for us. Jesus is going to die for us. On to him, he's going to take off all the just wrath from a holy God for our sins. And he's going to absorb within himself all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our hostility to God. And he will do it as an act of love and compassion for humanity. And just hours before this gruesomely beautiful sacrifice happens, Christ prays this prayer. And it reveals to us a profound hope and desire that he has for his followers, those who trust in his name then and all who would trust in his name in the future. The reality is that we could spend forever talking about the high priestly prayer. There is so much... In this, like you could just tell by the wordage, there's a lot of things in here that needs clarified. We could spend months on this, but we're going to look at four simple questions today in looking at the high priestly prayer. The first is, is what is the big idea that's being prayed here? Secondly, who is being prayed for? Thirdly, what is being prayed over the who? And lastly, is this ongoing? Is this continuous? 
And so what is being prayed here? What is the big idea? Well, the simple idea is this. The simple answer to that question is that God's glory would be known and seen. That is the fundamental big idea of this prayer, is that God's glory would be known and seen. That is what Jesus is praying for. And what that means is that God would, des- would, would get his deserved honor and credit, that everything would point to him as the most beautiful and good and right and holy genesis of life, the source of which all of creation finds its worth and its value and its purpose and identity, that humanity finds its most satisfaction and enjoyment in life if we love God most. And so Jesus says, Father, in the hour, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may be glorified, may glorify you. On the way to the cross, Jesus pauses to embrace what is to come. And what is to come? His betrayal, his arrest, his torture, his brutal execution. And to us, that doesn't make sense. How can anyone be honored and glorified through execution? Yet we know that God's glory is on full display here. We know it's on display in that all of our due punishment and all of our due wrath in our sin for a creation that has walked away from their fundamental source and their fundamental design will be poured out onto Christ. God's holiness and perfection is made evident in the just and complete sacrifice in Christ. But he's also glorified in the compassion and love that he has for creation in offering up his son. Christ is glorified because he becomes our mediator, the bridge per se that restores right relationship with God by grace through faith. And so to the world, the cross is utter humiliation. It's utter humiliation but it is an instrument of worship in the eyes of God. Jesus goes on to say, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Jesus says, Lord, I brought you honor and fame and glory and worship through what I did, through your name, my work. Everything that I did pointed back to you. Everything that I did showed who you are. And then lastly, Jesus says this. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, referring to disciples, believers, followers of them, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. What is it that Christ is wanting to give to his followers? He's wanting to impart to them his glory, his glory. And what does that mean? he's imparting to them his presence, his word, his spirit, his power, his leadership, his perseverance. These are the things that the son got from the father and now he's giving to the disciples. And why is he giving these followers, why is he giving us the glory of his own self? He says it right here in this verse. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus imparts to us his glory, all that he is, that we may bring glory and worship to the creator God of the universe through how we live and how we love. That is the important what here. That is the most important what that we can read in this passage. What does God want for us? 
He's praying that his glory would be known through us to the world. God first receives his glory through the Son, then through his death and resurrection. And now he wants his glory through his people. Isaiah, the prophet, writes this in chapter 43. He says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Everything that was formed was formed for God's beauty and goodness and love and holiness to be known in the world. That is the what that God wants from his creation. The second question is this, who is being prayed for? Who is being prayed for? Jesus says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, what we cannot insinuate from this passage is that Jesus does not care for a lost and fallen world, but rather he is praying for the instruments being created to reach it. Jesus does not pray for the world, but for those who love him in order that they may continue his work, they may continue his redemptive plan in this world. And so who is Christ praying for? He's praying for those who love him. He's praying for those who know him, who are in relationship with him, which means this is that our prayer life can never be disconnected from a relationship with God himself. To know him, to love him, to see our prayer life disconnected from a relationship with God, a deep personal relationship with God, is to believe that God is a genie in a bottle who owes us our entitlements. It makes our prayers into wishes. The priority of God is that we love him and that we may glorify him in the world. The third question is, is what is he praying over us? What is he praying over the who, those who love Christ? Four things. Four things. First, in verse 15, he is praying that God keeps us, meaning that God protects us. Secondly, in verse 21, it says that he's praying for us to be unified. Thirdly, in verse 19, he's praying that we, his believers, his devoted followers, would be sanctified in the truth that we would become more complete images of Christ on this earth, not in divinity, but in our unity, in our maturity, in our love, in our compassion. And fourthly, in verse 13, we see that God is praying that all of these things would have accomplished in us, unifying, keeping, sanctifying through what? Through Christ's joy being fulfilled within ourselves. Christ prays this high priestly prayer. He offers himself up to God for God's glory and for our joy. The what that we have to consider in our prayer life, friends, is that above all things, God wants to be known in this world through us, through our love, through our life. He wants to be glorified. Secondly, And the more of how God gets the glory is that he would keep us. That we would not wander from his love and his word. That we would be unified. That we would become more mature and complete in our relationships, in our unity. And that we would come together 
and be in a spirit of oneness. And the causation of all of those things, the causation of God keeping us, unifying us, and sanctifying us is this, is that our joy would be found in him. That God's joy would be manifest fully in us. That every day that we would reveal to ourselves, that God would reveal to us more fully and deeply just what it is that Christ has done for us. Just who he is and what he means for us. That Christ has rescued us, that he saved us, that he loves us. If we grow in our joy of his love, of his rescue, that keeps us, that sanctifies us, that unifies us. And so lastly, is this a continuous prayer? And the answer is yes. Hebrews 7 finds these verses. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. I want you to listen to this. He says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always, always lives. Jesus always lives to intercede for them. And so the answer is yes, Christ continues to intercede for his people in the heavenly realms. He is praying prayers for us in this very moment. And the content of his prayers has not changed from this moment. God is praying for his glory to be known through us. He's praying that we are kept. He's praying that we're unified. He's praying that we're sanctified. And he's praying, most of all, that our joy would be found in him completely. And so what does this mean for our prayer life? Do we pray as a people that know about God or as one that truly knows him? The very design of prayer is relationship. It's closeness to God. And his people who love him do our prayers center around God being known through our lives and through our words, through our actions, through our inactions, that the joy of Christ may be increased in our life. Is it our desire to be sanctified? Is it our desire to be unified? Is it our desire to glorify him? So to go back to the Apostle Paul who says that we should pray for everything in every season without ceasing, of course the answer is yes. (laughs) Yes. But never detached, ever detached from our creator in relationship. And not as one who isn't aware of what God wants most. We must in all of our strength and all of our ability and all of our desire come to the same conclusion that Christ comes to at the end of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asks the Father to remove this cup from him, meaning to take away this crucifixion. Jesus ends with these words, not my will be done, but yours be done, Father. We have to submit And accept that it has to be the will of the Father done on this earth. Flourishing isn't found in our will. Flourishing is only found in his will and his design. And make no mistake, friends, God will have his glory. He will have his glory. And often we think that God getting glory is about good things happening to us. That when all of our realities happen the way that we want them to happen, then God gets the glory. We deduce often that God is most glorified when we are most happy. 
But the cross speaks differently. The cross speaks differently to us. Jesus prays that God would be glorified through his murder, through his death. So we know that we will not always glorify God by being pleased with all the happenings in our lives. But we will please and glorify God through greater joy in who he is. I want to end with a story. When I was a teenager, I came to Christ um, when I was 17. And I learned a lot uh, about Jesus in that time, but I really didn't have a lot of understanding, but I had enough understanding. There were lots of hard things in my world at that time, which is not uncommon to the world of teenagers. But one of the things that I remember the most in my childhood, and I don't have a lot of memories from when I was late in my childhood. Uh, It's not because I was smoking weed. I don't want anybody making assumptions on those things, okay? I just don't have a lot of memories from my childhood. But one of the rudimentary memories that I have is a a very elementary prayer, like a, a calf taking a new step. I just was trying to do what I was supposed to do. And I remember to this day the content of my prayer. And that prayer was, was always, Lord, will you make this stop? Lord, will you make this stop and, and give me faith to see? Lord, give me faith to see. Weirdly enough, that is one of very few memories that I have as a child. Now, I was pretty competitive in that day. And so often that prayer would turn into, Lord, I want to have the most prayer of anybody who's ever walked this world before. And then I would pause and wait, and I would say, except for Jesus, right? Except for Jesus, just below him. I didn't have my Trinitarian views uh, formulated at at that time. Lord, will you give me faith more than anybody who's walked this earth? And so here's the thing. I never, I never got the girlfriend I wanted. <laughs> I never won the game that I wanted to win. I never got the sort of praise that I prayed for. And I never fell into the kind of money that I had hoped for and prayed for. But it stopped. I don't know why, but I have faith. I have faith. Is the content of our prayer life aligned with the content of God's prayer life for us? His continual, ongoing, intercessory prayers for us. Are we praying for everything without ceasing? But are we remembering that what he wants most, what he wants most is that we make our prayer life about him? that our prayers would be that we want what he wants most because it has to be his will. It has to be his will. It can never be ours. Would you make that the prayer of your life? That Lord, you would just simply teach me to love what you love, to want what you want, to have faith to see you.
bring our prayer life into greater alignment with what the God of the universe wants for us.